If you have your Bible, you can open with me to Exodus chapter 20. As we get started here, just a, uh, a little plug for our evening service tonight. Last Sunday night, we spent a little bit of time um, looking or probing a little bit deeper into the commandment about uh, the prohibition against murder and how that relates to things like uh, the execution of justice or just war. Uh, because we did that last week, uh, we will probably spend some time this evening talking a little bit more about the issue of divorce and remarriage. Uh, it won't be any sort of a full-blown or exhaustive discussion, but probably a little bit more needs to be said uh, since we have more time than what was said last week when we were addressing adultery. So I would encourage you, if you have uh, the time and the opportunity to come and to spend some additional time with us in the Word uh, so that we can grow in our knowledge and understanding of what the Lord has willed for us. All that to say, we're in Exodus chapter 20 this morning, continuing to look at the Ten Commandments, taking one commandment each week. We are now at the Eighth Commandment, which would be Exodus chapter 20, Verse 15, Exodus twenty fifteen says, You shall not steal. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. Father, we come and we must acknowledge from the outset that we have done those things that you have forbidden us to do. We have not done those things that you have commanded us to do. The only reason that we are able to approach you and address you in any sort of way is not because of any righteousness that we have done, but because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that counts for us. So, Father, we would ask that as we spend time in your word this morning that you would do two things, that in your wisdom and in your perfecting work that you would continue to reveal to us the sin that we entertain, the sin that still needs to be put to death, and at the same time, make us thankful for the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ, who not only gives us pardon from sin, but also begins the progressive work of sanctification so that the commands and the instructions that we find in your word become a truer and truer reflection of what we desire to do. Help us to be thankful for your spirit who not only gives us new hearts to love your word and your law as we find it, but who also gives us the ability to carry out your commands and to do it with joy and with gratitude. Thank you for this time that we have, and we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Exodus twenty fifteen. you will not steal might not be bad to start again before we even get into the commandment because of the fact that the commandment continues to reveal our weakness and our waywardness, right? To remind ourselves of what we're told in the New Testament by Paul in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the, spirit, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do 
what this law could not do, weak as it was in our flesh, God did. Sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Once again, we want to say and we want to confess and acknowledge outright that God has done and is doing two things for us in our life in Christ. Number one, we already have in full pardon for every violation of this command as we'll find it today in God's word. Every way conceivable that we have broken this command, we already have. If we have found life and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, we have a full and complete pardon. But that with that pardon, or we should say, and with that pardon, and with that pardon, comes a perfecting work. So that little by little, day by day, year after year, God is transforming us more and more into the image of his Son so that we will live like Jesus himself lived, so that we will find that we more and more walk in conformity with God's will as we find it in his word. So even in the midst of conviction, there is reason to find great comfort and great hope. The eighth command, you will not steal, prohibits, forbids us, from taking or withholding by any unjust or sinful means what rightly belongs to another person. Let me say that again. The prohibition, the command not to steal, forbids us from taking or withholding by any unjust or sinful means what rightly belongs to another person. That's what we're not to do. But as we've said, every negative command, every prohibition has the flip side. It comes with the further explanation of what is prescribed, not just what we're not to do, but what we are to do in its place. So what the Eighth Commandment prescribes, what it tells us that we ought to do, is to give whatever we owe to another person and to promote and secure the material well-being of others. The Eighth Commandment is directing us to give whatever we owe to another person and to promote and secure their material well-being. So as we've been doing, we want to do this and we want to work through the Eighth Commandment in two main ways. One, we want to take a look at what the Eighth Commandment directed God's people to do how it gave them shape, how it defined their life together as a covenant community in the Old Testament context, what it meant, how it was to be applied. And then we also want to recognize that because all of this is ultimately pointing to the greater revelation, the greater work of righteousness in the person of Jesus Christ and the transformation that comes to God's new covenant people, we want to see how the Eighth Commandment is fulfilled by, in, and through Christ in the new covenant. So start with me in the meaning and application in the old covenant context. One of the things that we want to say outright is that theft or stealing 
is in many ways in the Old Testament, particularly in the, in the Ten Commandments, the, the Ten Commandments oftentimes give the foundational or the core element that then will be further developed as the law continues. Right, so the prohibition against adultery was expounded upon to indicate or to show that not merely were God's people to prize the blessing and the gift of marriage, but that they were to guard the gift of sexual intimacy, whether in marriage or outside of marriage, right? The, the command to adultery begins, and then the rest of the law begins to expound on the way that that works itself out in various elements of life. Same here with the command not to steal. Stealing as it's found here, probably in a very limited way, has the idea of taking something that belongs to someone else, but taking it in secrecy. Right? You do it in subterfuge. You do it when no one is looking, or you find a way to weasel, it, weasel something out of someone's possession without anyone having a clue as to what you're doing. At least that's what you hope. But stealing by under cover of secrecy is not the only thing that God is concerned about in terms of how his people will interact, will live together. As you continue to go through the law, you begin to find that not only is stealing, taking something in secret or under cover of darkness, not only is that prohibited, but other things that are related or that are branches of Stealing and theft are also prohibited. So things like robbery, that is, just assault. You accost someone, you mug them in broad daylight, right? That's not done under any hiding or any shadow of darkness, but by violent means you take or see something that belongs to someone else. Robbery would fall under the prohibition of theft. The idea of confiscating or withholding from someone what they are due or what they are owed. If you take, for example, a pledge, a down payment from a poor person, and they have nothing to give you but the coat on their back, Exodus says, or the law says, that you cannot keep that coat overnight because they need that coat to keep warm when they sleep. Therefore, you cannot withhold from them what they need, a basic material possession to secure their life and their health. Confiscation or withholding would fall under the idea of theft. Fraud would fall under the idea of theft. So that the scriptures have much to say in the Old Testament about the fact, for example, that you, when you go to the marketplace, when you barter and sell and trade, you will not use unjust weights. You will weigh out a product and you will give a fair price for it. You will not defraud your brother or your sister in any way. And it also has the idea or covers the idea of exploitation. The rich, for example, because they are comfortable and secure, do not have the right to take advantage of the poor. 
Because the poor is starving and because the poor are desperate for work, you then do not have the right to steal from them an honest wage that they need to feed themselves and their families. That would be theft. One of, one of the, the common threads that runs through all of these things, theft, robbery, confiscation, fraud, exploitation in the law, one of the, the things that ties it all together is that anytime those things happen, there is an expectation that God's people will make restitution when they commit that sin. You must restore to that person what you took, what you stole, or what you owe them. Look with me at some of the different ways that God communicates to his people, to us, what he's talking about when he's talking about stealing or robbing or exploiting one another and the need for us to restore what was taken from one of our brothers and sisters. We're here in Exodus 20. You can go over just one page, perhaps. Maybe it's on the same page. I'm not sure. Exodus 21, 16. Exodus 21, 16 starts off, he who kidnaps a man. The, the word there for kidnap is actually the same Hebrew word in 2015 for steal. He who steals a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. Theft is so serious that if you were to offend your brother in such an egregious way that you attempt to steal his life for your benefit or for your good. You try to take unlawful possession of another person. That is a capital crime for Israel in the Old Covenant. You're executed. Your attempt to take their life in your possession means that restitution is made by forfeiting your own life. Look at 22.1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. So if you knowingly and willfully steal from your neighbor to try to enrich yourself to either fill your belly further or to make some more money at his expense, not only will you restore to him what it is that you took, namely the ox or the sheep, but you will make restitution by way of the original article, and on top of that, we might say a fine, your restitution will be four or even fivefold what you took from him. Those statements, restitution being made in the forfeiture of your own life, restitution being made in fourfold or fivefold way, applies to situations where someone in the covenant community with evil intent, premeditation, maliciously takes from someone else 
to try to make themselves rich in such a way that it impoverishes their neighbor. Malicious intent. But that's not the only way that God governs or shapes his people. It's not merely that God is concerned that his people do not commit the evil, overt act of theft. God is concerned about the protection and the security of any possession, of any rights that his people have, such that they're not lost for any reason, whether intended or not. So, for example... Look in Exodus chapter 21, verse 33. If a man opens a pit or digs a pit and does not cover it over and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution. He shall give money to its owner and the dead animal shall become his. Look at 22.6. If a fire breaks out and spreads to thorn bushes so that stacked grain or the standing grain or the field itself is consumed, he who started the fire shall surely make restitution. Do you hear those two examples? You dig a pit. You do a controlled burn that gets out of hand such that it burns up some of your neighbor's field or crops, there was no evil, malicious intent to cause his animal to break its neck by falling into the hole that you dug. There was no evil, malicious intent for him to lose part of his crops when you were doing your control burn. Those things were out of your control. But even in the case of negligence, because your negligence even unintentionally, has contributed to the loss or to a loss by your brother or sister, you have the obligation as a covenant member of this community to restore equally the loss that came as a result of your negligence. So, practical example. Perhaps this would be like some, something like you have an old tree on your property, rotting. But fortunately, the tree is not leaning in the direction of your house. The tree is leaning in the direction of your neighbor's house. You are not going to go out there. You're not pushing on the tree to try to knock it over to fall on your neighbor's house. But if you don't take care of your property such that your responsibility results in a loss to your neighbor, God says your responsibility is to make restitution to your neighbor for your negligence, even if you did not intend for them to suffer loss. Oh, merit. This is just not the American way. Right? I mean, we, we have law codes 
We have regulations. We, how all these things are, are ferreted out. We have insurance companies that deal with all of this. Is, is, is that what marks God's people out? A disregard for the welfare of their neighbors such that whatever harm comes to them, well, that's someone else's problem. Does that sound like a people who reflects the loving, caring, nurturing nature of a God who saves and redeems? Or perhaps, young people, you're enjoying the freedom that comes with moving out of your parents' house. You're a renter in an apartment. Or you're a renter in a home. Not my home. I plunked down a couple hundred extra bucks as a security deposit. Therefore, when it's time for me to move out, I don't care how many holes are in the wall. I don't care what the floors look like. I don't care what it smells like in here. That's the owner's problem, not my problem. You see what's happening there? You're, you're forcing an expense on another person out of your negligence and then demanding or assuming that they must be the ones to compensate for your negligence. That doesn't sound like a wholly separate, distinct people. That sounds like everybody else. Or if we can push it down a little bit further, a little bit of a younger age, for those of you teenagers or grade school kids who are still living under your parents' roof. Mom and dad will fix that. Yeah, they've told me a dozen times not to play with this ball by this window. It's all right. They got the money for it. I know they've told me not to eat in the car. But what's one more spill among 20 or 30? The law is commanding God's people not merely to refrain from an evil, an overtly evil act by which you take something that rightfully belongs to someone else. You impoverish them in order to make yourself rich, but even to move along the lines or the direction that you say, I don't want to do anything intentionally or unintentionally that would cause my neighbor to lose something that rightly belongs to them. I don't want them to be impoverished or to suffer loss in any way, and I will do my level best to see to it that their property and possessions are protected and respected, and in the event that it's not, as a demonstration of my love and obedience to the Lord, I will see to it that I try to right that wrong. Still not done. Turn to Exodus 23 and look at verses 4 and 5. 
if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you will surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you will refrain from leaving it to him. You will surely release it with him. Do you, do you hear that? Now we have moved further down the line. We're not talking about theft or stealing by any sort of overt evil action. We're not talking about the loss of property or possession by negligence. We're talking about the fact that your enemy, someone who hates your guts, is in a position to lose something that belongs to him. Not because you're going to take it and not because of your negligence, but because you see that he's about to lose something that belongs to him. What does God tell his people to do? You help him so that he doesn't suffer that loss. Oh, no, now we've gone too far. That's just ridiculous. Listen, because here's the thing. The other part to this is, there's nothing in the law in and of itself. This kind of a command would be very difficult to prosecute. Right? Because what you would have to show in the prosecution of this crime would be the intent in your mind. You would have to have someone take you to court and prove that you knew that there was about to be a loss and you chose not to do anything. No one can prove that. But your conscience tells you what you knew and you recognized. And if your conscience says your enemy is in trouble and is risking the loss of some possession or property, you must answer the call of your conscience by preserving that property or possession. Even when you have no liability, no skin in the game, So this is what happens when you get to the end of a long week at work and you've got, you know, that, that coworker, that coworker, you know the one. The one that just grates on you to no end. The one who is trying to undermine you so that you don't get the promotion that you deserve. The person who is planting rumors in the office about you behind your back, doing everything they can to undermine you. You get to, it's Friday. I don't have to see this guy or this girl for two or three days now. I'm going to enjoy a little bit of peace and sanity. And you walk out into the parking lot, you're about to get in your car, and you see that person with a flat tire. What do you do? Hope the rest of your weekend goes better. Right? I'm out of there. No. No. If this is the direction that God is moving his people in, 
That means that what you're seeing is the potential that your enemy could lose money on having to call a tow truck if they can't fix or put a spare tire on. You know what you ought to do? Help them change the tire. Or, college students, you're in class. Everyone has their laptop. Everyone is doing their work. And there's that student in the class. Teacher's pet. Always has the answer. Always looks down, makes fun at the rest of us plebes who are struggling to keep up. We're trying to get an assignment done in class, and all of a sudden they have problems with their Word or their PowerPoint. They're about to lose their work. <laughs> I know how to fix that. <laughs> what do you do? Well, if God's Word is directing and shaping His people such that the concern is any loss of time, of effort, of work, not just simply by your friends, but even of your enemies, those who would grate on your nerves, if you know of a way to help them save their work, you ought to get up and go over and say, could I help you with this? That's the law. You better run back to Romans 8, right? Who, who doesn't read this and say, I'm done. Every, every week that we've gone through these commandments, isn't that where we always end up? I'm done. I can't do this. I don't have the capacity to do it. You better run to Romans 8, and you better claim for yourself the pardon and the forgiveness and the no condemnation that is given to you freely in Jesus Christ. Because if it's not for Jesus, there is not a single one of us in this room who come out from the Eighth Commandment untouched. Let me press one further before we go to the fulfillment of this command in the New Covenant through, through Christ. What ultimately, I mean, theft, negligence, exploitation, fraud, all of those things are fairly recognizable, right? But those are symptoms. What's at the root of all of that? Why do people steal? Why are you tempted to allow someone else to suffer loss? Well, there could be a variety of reasons. Let me give you at least one. Psalm 24 says that the earth is the Lord and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. And along those same lines, he also says to his people in Deuteronomy 8, you will remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth 
that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as to this day. Everything in this created order belongs to the Lord. Everything. And the Lord is the one who gives us the ability to make money, to gain property, to acquire possessions. The reason that we steal, the reason that we have thieving hearts, the reason that we don't mind seeing someone else lose a possession that we would not want to lose is because deep down what it reveals is that we have a heart that is unwilling to yield to God's prerogative to give his gifts and blessings as he would choose. They have something that I ought to have. Therefore, I'll take it. No. They have something that God gave them. Therefore, you will not take it. They have something that I ought to have. It's not fair. It's not right. It's not just. I should have that. No. You don't have that because God did not give you that. Therefore, you cannot demand to have it. Do you see? What underlines the stealing impulse is a heart that is not satisfied with the way that God has dispensed his gifts and blessings in his creation. He ought to be dispensing things and giving things in such a way that I am satisfied, that I approve of what he's done. And if he doesn't do it the way that I would approve, I'll fix it for him. So all of this is moving in a direction where God's people are reminded over and over again that it's God who gives blessings. It's God who gives material prosperity. It's God who makes us secure in the physical needs of this life. And how he gives and how he distributes is not left to us. We must respect that. We must honor it even to the point of working to preserve and guard and secure what God has given not just to me, but to another person. And then here's the way that this carries over into the new covenant. In the old covenant mindset, the sign of God's blessing was material prosperity, or at least a sign of God's blessing, right? I mean, we just, we just read it from Deuteronomy 8. It's the Lord your God who gives you the ability to make wealth to confirm his covenant that he made with your fathers. In other words, my physical material prosperity or security was a sign that God was for me and not against me, that he favored me, that he favored us over all these other people. What happens when you come to the new covenant? Now, all of a sudden, it's not physical prosperity and material security that is the guarantee that God favors you. It's Christ. The Eighth Commandment finds its fulfillment 
in Christ, who made himself poor so that we could become rich. He does not merely not take what he's given to us. He takes what we don't have that belongs to him, and he gives it to us. 2 Corinthians 8, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Paul says in Romans 8, that if God did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with Christ freely give us all things? Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the Eighth Commandment because Christ gives what he does not have to give so that undeserving people can gain what they don't deserve to receive. So you move into Ephesians 4 and listen to what Paul says. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19. Instruct those who are rich to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Material prosperity is not real life. That's not ultimate happiness. That's not our security. That's not the sign of God's favor. God has demonstrated his favor, has promised us his blessing by virtue of the fact that he gave what was most precious and costly to him, namely his very son. And anyone who recognizes what they have received in Jesus Christ, everything else in this world begins to look cheap and shallow in comparison. God's people ought to be the ones who are saying, if I have Christ, I have everything. And if I have everything, but I don't have Christ, I have nothing. And because I have everything in Christ, here, take what you need. I don't need it. I have what I need. The grace of God is given to us so that in an extension of that grace, we can give to other people in what the world would say are foolish, reckless ways. And we say, no. This is not foolish. This is not reckless. These are investments. This throwing away for the benefit and the good of others, this giving to other people, whether they deserve it or not, 
as an expression of my joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ, eternal investments are being made. You're the fool for thinking that this is all that there is. The Eighth Commandment finds fulfillment in people who find their riches in Christ and His rewards and give radically as an expression of their joy and contentment. And one other thing that we can say. The Eighth Commandment even finds its fulfillment in a people who are so confident in their future riches that they will rejoice when they are robbed. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34. Turn there. Start with me at verse 32. Remember the former days when after being enlightened, when having your eyes open, when, when you saw Christ and what He is, remember after that how you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure, the theft of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. The Eighth Commandment is ultimately directing us to consider that the greatest prosperity that God gives to us now is the prosperity that we find in the riches of Jesus Christ. And that the riches and the promises that are given to us in Christ cannot be compared to anything that we find in this world order, in this life, as we find it now. Such that... Such that, even if I am robbed, even if for this cause of Christ, as a way to persecute me, they seize my property unlawfully, they take what does not belong to them because they are attempting to minimize and disenfranchise me because of my love for Christ, I will look at that unlawful theft and seizure and I will sing because I know that I am going to receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken because I know that Jesus said blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth, everything.
My prayer for myself, my prayer for you, for this church, in light of the Eighth Commandment, is that we become so enamored, so moved by what we see in the person of Jesus Christ that everything else just looks cheap in comparison. Let's pray. Father, what do we have that was not first given to us? And because we have received all that we own and possess, why would we boast as if it wasn't given to us? Father, in every way, you have been good to your people. You have given to us what we need, not only for food and for clothing, but more than that, you have given us the riches that have been purchased by the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. You have convinced us of the certainty of those rewards by the Holy Spirit who has sealed us in this faith, who promises that we will one day enter in to our rest and our reward. And so in that light, Father, we ask that you would cultivate hearts here at Edgewood that look foolish in the eyes of the world because we consider the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ to far surpass anything that this world would have to offer us. And anything that we do have in this world, we would hold with an empty hand and be generous and ready to share as we have opportunity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.